Good afternoon, Daniel. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I am flourishing. How are you? So I noticed that you say this all the time. You say, I'm flourishing when I say, how are you? And I've always wondered whether it's just something you like to say or whether it's a way of trying to subtly convert me to virtue ethics <laughs> away from utilitarianism and you're just trying to meme me into a more moral life. I, I have no doubt, Daniel, that you could be memed into a more moral life. Uh, but alas, <laughs> flourishing is what I say to everyone. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adams with Institutes podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of research at the ASI. You've just been hearing me chatting with our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and my co-host. In today's edition, we're about to be joined by two special guests. First of all, we're going to have a chat with Oliver Wiseman, uh, the US editor of The Critic magazine, to discuss the election result. And then later, we're going to be joined by Sam Bowman, the director of competition policy at the International Center for Law and Economics, and a senior fellow at the Anderson Institute to discuss England's COVID-19 lockdown. But first, the US election result remains uncertain, at least at our time of recording on Thursday afternoon. Uh, it is clear so far, though, that the polls, which almost universally predicted a Biden landslide, have been proven dramatically wrong, with key states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, and Nevada all down to the crunch. Uh, Biden remains narrowly ahead in the count, with, according to New York Times, 27 ways uh, to victory, as opposed to Trump, who only has four. Um, Nevertheless, this is not the result we were expecting at all, was it, Ollie? Um, what do you see as, as what surprised you? Well, I mean, the, the big surprise is just the um, it's, it's just simply the fact that it's a lot closer than than everyone expected. Now, I, I you know I do think that uh, Biden will emerge from the next kind of whether it's twenty four hours or seventy two hours or two weeks or whatever it is um, as the as the next president. Um, the um, nature of that win though is is totally different to what we thought and i think the interesting thing is you know we had all these conversations over the last weeks and months about um you know what the democrats are going to do with power what um what ambitious healthcare plan they might go for whether biden will be able to stop the left uh, will they pack the court uh, all of these kind of sort of american progressive pipe dreams um and the reality of what the American people have sort of thrown back at Washington is something totally different, where actually, you know, if it looks very hard for for Democrats to, to gain control of the Senate, as many people thought they would. Um, so actually, you have, you have divided government in Washington, you have, um, you know, and, in, and instead of kind of President Biden holding, holding the um, AOC and co at bay, or trying to and failing, um, you have President Biden seeing if there's any scope for compromise um, at all in Washington. So it's fascinating to see that the dynamics of what, what, what are ahead of us are just totally different to what we were, we were all expecting um, going into uh, Tuesday. I've seen it said on Twitter that this was potentially the best result for free marketeers uh, at Biden presidency, but then held to account by a Republican party that might finally find its kind of fiscal backbone since when uh, the Democrats are in the White House, they, they at least tend to place some more deference to the idea of uh, economic responsibility or at least fiscal responsibility. Um, but I think there's also a lot of other kind of interesting things going on here. The extent to which Trump has really undermined once again, you know, twice in four years, it's 
it's it's for me for me once oh, i'm gonna do a george w bush here and screw up my my for you once for me for me you, you quote anyway um i think the fact that this happened twice and the polls have just been proven so extraordinarily wrong um it kind of almost makes me angry to be honest it's it's we don't actually have any good empirical data about the state of the world if, we, if the polls are this far off and i just really want to know like i don't think we have any clue whatsoever just yet but what was systematically with polls and it can't just be in my head, it can't just be, oh, this, these were a few points off. Things are always a few points off, but they're not systematically a few points off, or it, quite often in this case, more than a few points off, all in the same direction, all in more or less in Trump's favour. You, you look just state by state by state. Um, and then if you dig down in some of the Senate races as well, there's just huge, huge discrepancies that can't simply be explained away by um, you know, traditional kind of errors. Something is going wrong with the, the nature of American polling. Yeah, I think the... Um um, you know, I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, I would say that this sort of popular theory of the kind of shy Trump voter, you might look at the, you might look at the um, polls and the results and say, ah, oh, there really are the shy Trump voters out there. I'm a bit, I'm a bit skeptical about that because if you look at um, the result, the Senate results, actually, I think the Senate results were, were further off than the Trump, um, the presidential results were. So, and, and you kind of, if there was a shy Trump vote, you kind of expect that the Trump Biden polling would be the worst of the lot right so it doesn't make any sense to have a shy trump theory when um you know susan collins in maine who's a very moderate republican quite sort of you know, as about as far from trump as you can get within the republican party these days she uh she was she she was one of the, that, that was one of the biggest polling misses on, on the night and, and you know i don't think a single poll put her in the lead in her senate race and she um she kind of comfortably won re-election so it's you know the the shy Trump thing is is sort of lets the pollsters off the hook. I mean they have a major problem in how they um, how they collect you know the view they take of who the electorate is uh, and and how they how they sample that and so on clearly seems to be way off. Now I would also say and I, and I I sort of fell into the trap of putting too much credence in the pollsters. I think partly that's because of the pandemic and and, and many more reporters were stuck at home and so the kind of gut check on a lot of the polling was there weren't quite as many people out there saying you know well I'm, I'm here on you know some of these for example some of these hispanic uh, heavily hispanic texan counties where they've just like massively swung for trump i feel like you probably would have picked that up on the ground in a way that polls obviously didn't um but i think that just finally on the polls i think there's a broader point here which is a which is a sort of more philosophical point and and that is to say you know, ultimately, it's on us for, for wanting certainty about an uncertain, um, an uns about the future. You know, we don't. It, we're sitting there in September and October, and, and we want to com sort of completely feel safe in the knowledge of what's going to happen when hundreds of millions of Americans make a decision in, in in weeks or days' time. And actually, you know, there's an extent to which you just need to accept that that you can't you can't ever know these things for certain and that like a Nate Silver model is not going to improve. You know, if, if you can't sleep at night because you're worried about the election, the problem is not, you know, don't, don't, don't stop looking at that. Nate Silver is not the person to, to um, fix that problem. You should probably kind of get a shrink or, or something instead. <laughs> yeah. Just to pick up on the, the point you made about the Senate polling, having an even greater discrepancy than the presidential polling. I think this kind of undermines the, the Nate Silver defense of, well, of course, with an electoral college system, even very small differences in polling are going to have much more magnified and significant outcomes. If that 
was the case, then we'd expect higher polling error uh, in the presidential election. That simply hasn't happened. The idea that we can just put this down to, well, there's a unique feature of the uh, American presidential election system is is not going to cut weight when you've got polling errors of such magnitude across the board. It is even more broadly problematic because if you can't poll for people's electoral preferences, you probably can't really poll for anything else. So the extent to which politicians are dependent on using polls uh, to ask about what views the public might be holding, the extent to which we can now lack trust in polls is maybe maybe you're right, Ollie. Uh, it's it's ultimately about you know, getting that shoe leather um, dirty and and making sure that you actually speak to people as a politician rather than trying to use polls to direct your response to issues. Um, I, it it just creates, I suppose, a lot more uncertainty. But I think uncertainty probably comes out of the, the complexity of the world we're trying to read. Right. I mean, I think you can use polls to say broadly speak. You know, you can use polls to answer questions where you can tolerate quite a high, um, quite a big mistake. Um, you know, like if you're, I mean, polling emerged from market research, right, for companies. And, and if, if they don't really need to know if it's 70% or 60% who of the market who love their new cereal. I mean, it's kind of, that's a, that's a high enough number, right? And I think you probably still use them in a similar way for, you know, support for policies and stuff. But it's whether you're, when you're using them to sort of deal with what are, what are going to be very, very close races, um, you know, and a, and a couple of points are in it, and you can't you can't use that if we if we're, if we're told that you know we could get these huge huge mistakes. I would also say on the on the um, on the models on the Nate Silver model and the Economist one and so on. You know, the the defense is already um, being the, the case in it, for the defense is already being made. But ultimately, you know, if a model predict, it's true. You know, it's true that a model can that gives Biden a ninety percent chance, like technically, isn't wrong when the race is when the race is closer than we thought, because, hey, Biden's going to win anyway. And also, you know, we said a Trump win was possible. But maybe the point there is actually just, if you're saying that the guy with the polling lead will probably win, you know, do we need you to tell us that? Like, do we need to really worry about these models? No, but no, but seriously, like, what's the, what's the, you know, if you can never be wrong, you can also never be right, right? I mean, yeah, Nate Nate Silver also to some extent does always play this game where I think in both a few days before this election, a few days before 2016, he had posts saying Trump could still win and, and here's why and things could be a lot closer. I mean, in defense of the modeling, the modeling is only as good as the polling. It's kind of garbage in, garbage out uh, to some extent because if the polling is so far, far off, then of course the modeling is also going to be relatively far off. But I think we've probably discussed the kind of the polling issue enough. I think there's a few other interesting parts coming out of this. The first part is the question about the legitimacy of the result. So whatever happens, it appears like there's there's quite an effort, um, particularly on the Republican side at the moment, to try to undermine the idea that this was actually a limit, le- legitimate result. Now, I think it's kind of hypocritical for Democrats to say, I can't believe Donald Trump is questioning the legitimacy of the result after they just spent four years of claiming that <laughs> Donald Trump was an illegitimate president who effectively was just there because of Russian disinformation or something. But to what extent is this going to blow our position in the next few weeks so we're going to see this kind of court battle after court battle we're not going to get a clear result for a long long time or do you think this will kind of quickly disappear and trump will accept the result i think there are two things or maybe three things going on firstly i think there's a i think quite a lot in terms of what the next few weeks looks like quite a lot rides on these very close states that we haven't heard um, final decisions on yet so you know if if actually it turns out Biden has won like Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, then 
the kind of case for like fighting this to, to um, you know, fighting this all the way um, from Republicans becomes becomes a bit weaker. Um, that may not be true of Trump himself, but I think very important factor here is what other senior Republicans, you know, how far they're willing to go along with what Trump wants to do. And I think they'll be, I think that's ultimately a fairly cynical calculation involved. And if it looks like he's lost, they won't kind of, they won't expend much capital, you know, um, backing him up when he's insisting, you know, refusing to accept defeat uh, in sort of two weeks time or whatever. So there's kind of the narrow question of, and I think, so I think there's sort of two two questions, right? There's the narrow question of like actually just figuring out who won the election, and Trump is like it's a classic case of Trump ruins everything, where it's like there's nothing wrong with a recount, guys. Like let it's a close race, like let the votes be counted properly, and if you're Democrats, you know, just be patient and, and have some trust in the process, um, and then kind of along like, parallel to that. Um, kind of quite conventional dynamic is the kind of Trump wildcard thing of like what sort of stuff can he stir up along the way. And actually, I think that, I'm sh- you know, there are, you, there are these scenes, you know, these, these scenes of sort of Trump supporters outside, um, outside counts and so on. But so far, I'm actually sort of, it's actually been pretty, pretty good, I think. And I mean, not what the president said, but I think that it hasn't kind of kicked off in the way many people thought it would. And you know, it's interesting if you look at um, Fox News's coverage, for example. I mean, they they called Arizona very early, which is not a political decision. I mean, that's a um, you know that's a sort of fairly rigorous process. That maybe, maybe they've called it too soon, but they haven't been they haven't sort of gone along with the Trump narrative over the last forty eight hours in the way that they might have done. I, you know, I saw Kaylee McEnany, the uh, president's press secretary, getting a fairly tough grilling. Uh, about this idea of like stopping counting votes as they come in and, and so on. So I think the environment in which this conversation happens is very important. And I don't think that the, right now, I don't think Trump's kind of getting the the like big push from potentially sympathetic places that he, that he sort of would need to, to, to cause maximum, um, maximum trouble. Uh, Daniel, have you been worried by the president's rush to declare victory? Uh, as seems to be the, the number one concern. I think the CNN was, uh, during election night, was very much pointing out that this would be a risk that Trump would prematurely declare victory. And then, of course, he arguably did prematurely declare victory. Is this the end of democracy, the end of times, uh, that Trump is claiming something that it might not be 100% true? Well, we haven't seen a civil war in America yet. So in that sense, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic. I think that um, the kind of broad view that, well, if comes down to maybe one state, um, and that's the deciding factor, then we could have some pretty serious fallout uh, on in terms of Supreme Court cases and things like that, where actually there would be enough resources to be able to focus on just one case uh, and, and one state where people uh, disputed the result. But no, I'm, I'm not as concerned by Trump's rhetoric uh, in terms of his impact on supporters, which I think was always the the key concern. I mean, Trump can tweet and say various things and uh, he can get annoyed at the fact that he's currently in a position where he looks like he's going to lose the election. But ultimately, what everyone was worried about was that his supporters would take that rhetoric and, and start uh, either, you know, intervening in uh, in count processes or potentially rioting on the streets in some of the more nightmare scenarios. And I just don't think that that's likely to happen. The way that 
it looks like it's going is that we're going to get um, a margin of victory that, that should be significant enough to stop some of the, the more outlandish predictions of what's going to happen. But I am I am concerned, obviously, that stop the counts, etc., uh, does undermine democratic institutions in America in, in uh, quite significant, certainly not a trivial way. The fact is that the, the leader of the free world is saying things that are anti-democratic um, in in a pretty severe way. Um, and that's not good. It doesn't set a good example um, on the international stage. Uh, and it certainly uh, amongst people who, who are his diehard supporters, and there are a lot of them in America, uh, it kind of promotes this this conspiracy that somehow um, Trump's having the election stolen away from him by nefarious sources such as people counting votes. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think to some extent this might just be the reality of American politics where both sides ultimately see the other's presidential victories as being stolen away by nefarious causes. And for the Republicans, that's at least some kind of Trumpian Republicans, that's going to be uh, the counting of votes after election day as some kind of legitimate act because they were mail-in ballots, uh, which of course Trump has been sowing seeds about for a long time. And for the Democrats, that's been misinformation and, and Russian propaganda. And I, I think the whole point of democracy is kind of being undermined here. And I think I've said this before on this podcast, which is that the whole point of democracy is not actually for the victor. The victor is always happy with the result. It's actually so that the loser accepts the proper process has been done. It doesn't seem like to me in either case, the proper process hasn't been followed. There might be some evidence of uh, irregularities that, that pop up here and there. But it doesn't seem overall like we've got a, a particularly good story of um, widespread fraud that's been caused. So just to come back on that, I, I certainly see the parallels that you do in that, yes, the Democrats spent uh, four years complaining about Russian disinformation and how they and kind of stolen the result in that way. But I don't think that they're quite the same thing. Uh, if you're blaming uh, election result on misinformation, it's not as direct an accusation of undermining the democratic process as saying there's widespread voter fraud. I think that they are, their differences of degree rather than kind, but I would say that in this particular case, in my opinion, it's it's more egregious to be talking about widespread voter fraud than it is to be talking about um, Russian interference and people uh, being exposed to misinformation. Just just to get back to more familiar ASI ground, I'm kind of interested in all your thoughts in terms of uh, what a potential Biden presidency means in, in practical policy terms. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the politics and you can start focusing on individual states and some kind of fundamental electoral differences in terms of their coalitions. But I, I want kind of just your thoughts on, on what do you think a Biden presidency means as opposed to uh, a Trump presidency, particularly in kind of the domestic policy front and then perhaps any kind of international policy position front that, that comes to mind? So it's interesting because really, actually, this result is weirdly, even though we didn't really expect, uh, expect it necessarily, it's weirdly in line with kind of the, the, the message of the Biden campaign in the sense that Biden basically just said to America time and time again, like Donald Trump is not fit to be president. And this 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 campaign is about restoring the soul of America and, and fixing the kind of almost emotional damage, the spiritual damage to the nation that that Trump has, has inflicted. Uh, and, and that's kind of what the result is, right? Like it hasn't given him a massive agenda or that hasn't given the left a massive agenda to... Um, Sorry, a massive. Sorry, excuse me. Not much sleep over here. A massive mandate to 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 um, um, to deliver on various um, big big policy areas. Um, 
So the boring answer in terms of what actually happened is probably not much because on, on the policy front because it's difficult to imagine too much cooperation between, a, assuming the Senate stays uh, Republican, it's difficult to imagine too much cooperation. Now, it's also going to be interesting because obviously Biden's whole like shtick is about a, a sort of better time in Washington where people reach across the aisle and um, and we work together and put party differences behind behind us and so you know that now he needs to sort of actually demonstrate that he's serious about that um and not just you know and that involved, that will involve concessions right to the to 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 the democratic party um i think there are some areas though where there's not so for example on um you know obviously you don't need you don't need senate um support for everything you do as a president um, unfortunately um but um so, so some of the foreign policy stuff, I think there's actually quite a lot of common ground on China between Republicans and Democrats. You know, the, the, one of the sort of big arguments I think Trump won in his presidency was about um, the, the kind of the, the threat of China. Um, I mean, he sort of more economic terms. I think others see it uh, more accurately as sort of geostrategic thing. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what kind of common ground Biden can create there. Um, and then the, the, next, the sort of most immediate thing is a kind of stimulus um, the stimulus talks that kind of stalled pre-election, um, whether Biden can kind of broker a compromise on that is kind of the first big test of, of you know, the extent to which he's a, he, he really is a sort of bipartisan um, uh, president. Yeah, I suspect in practical policy terms, there, there isn't huge extraordinary differences between Biden and, and Trump in many ways, because Biden has cho- chosen to run as a moderate. I, I think there's, there's changes in the margins that he's probably going to try to undo some of Trump's tax reforms. That said, that can't pass through the Senate. Uh, he can probably, Biden can probably try to put in place and change around some executive orders when it comes to, to red tape and regulation and probably uh, undermine America's economy in that way to some extent for the kind of democratic cause. I think you're probably going to see more spending under Biden than you might have under Trump, but both have uh, nowhere near fiscal hawks. So I don't think you see huge differences. I mean, on trade it's kind of interesting one because the democrats have kind of been flirting with the idea that they're more free trading but i suspect that's partly been a response to trump and and biden is just as much about bringing home manufacturing jobs he's not uh, acting like some pro free trade kind of force uh, i think your analysis about china is probably right as well there's there's been a general mood change about china i, I think trump began it in some ways uh, the way he went about it was probably a dramatic failure it's not like uh, particularly the focus on trade, tariffs were hugely damaging to American industry because it increased the, the cost of inputs they use and hugely damaging to American farming. It's probably undermined the economic boom we've seen in recent history. So on on specifically on trade with China, I think Trump's been a huge failure. But where he is being more successful is probably highlighting, as you said, the, the geostrategic threat and, and not, not much will change on that front. I mean, I do have a, a bit of a thought that potentially Biden, uh, when, it, when it comes to China, will be a better carrier of of what Trump has started, which is Biden as president will be able to bring together a far wider array of countries in, in terms of confronting Ch- some of China's worst instincts, while Trump was quite divisive on the international stage and not particularly popular overseas. So there's some, some potential there that uh, Trump can be, sorry, that, that Biden can be more successful than, than Trump in practice. And we've also got to consider the fact that we don't necessarily know how long Biden's going to hang around. It's unlikely he's going to run for re-election and, and the state of the Democratic Party subsequently. Yeah, I think that the, the kind of optimistic scenario when it comes to trade, perhaps not necessarily the most realistic scenario, is that because the GOP will control the Senate and um, 
and Biden may be going towards or trying to portray himself as a bit more of a free trader uh, than the Republicans, at least, that we actually get, that's where the bipartisan cooperation begins to take hold. If you look at uh, opinion polling, at least uh, around trade in America, it's undergone a pretty dramatic shift over the past decade or so in terms of favorability towards free and open trade. So that could be a potential area where if the GOP are looking for some soul searching and maybe starting to move away from uh, from Trumpism in the wake of what is likely to be a loss for them of the presidency in the White House, then this could actually be quite good from a, a free market perspective. But that depends on a number of things, not least whether the GOP actually do see this moment as uh, a kind of watershed moment to start rejecting uh, populism and protectionism. Yeah, that's all. That's what I actually wanted to ask you about next, which was whether or not this is going to have some kind of meaningful impact on the Republican Party. Does the kind of narrowness, sorry, does the narrowness of the result uh, mean that you get a huge kind of justification for Trumpism and and kind of the national conservative worldview, or or does the practical loss lead to some kind of rethink amongst the Republican Party? I think the biggest, um, you know, we all like, you know given our backgrounds in terms of, and you guys are at think tanks, we, we like to think of this in terms of ideas. And I think, however, I think the, the biggest impact is not really on the ideological battle. It's really on the personality and, and, and power struggle in the GOP in the sense that a bigger loss for Trump would have meant the kind of Trump world figures were sort of more likely to be sort of essentially exiled from the GOP and dumped as losers. Um, whereas now we, we're probably in a world where Trump himself is not a, is not a discredited uh, former president, is not a persona non grata. Um, the people around him are, you know, more welcome in GOP circles than they would have been if, if, if they totally, totally um, botched it this election. Um, and so I think that's kind of the, the, the more, probably the more important element of it. And I think on the ideas and the ideology side of things, I think I'm sort of generally quite skeptical of the argument that Trump completely transformed the the principles of the of the Republican Party in the sense that I think, you know, there has always been a um, what we would now call Trumpian wing of the party and the sort of slightly sort of paleoconservative, um, skeptical about foreign interventions, um, generally restrictionist on immigration. Um, and sort of pro kind of a bit more economic intervention than 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 sort of free marketeers. So Trump to me represents more a kind of a kind of the ascendancy of that wing of American conservatives conservative thinking rather than this kind of crazy comet that's la- that's hit that struck the GOP. And so I just kind of think that 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 will that that wing will you know hasn't been routed in the way it was and will remain a force be, an important force. And so I think this kind of chat of like, is Trumpism dead or not in the GOP is kind is not quite the right way to think about it. Yeah, there's this idea. I think it was Jared Kushner who said that Trump had conducted a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, and I don't quite buy that idea either. That somehow um, the GOP were completely free of any sort of. Uh, protectionist, uh, anti-immigration, uh, you know, Trumpian influences before uh, the Donald came along. So yeah, I'm I'm also sceptical that there's going to be, uh, especially with the, the closeness of this result, a uh, massive shift in GOP thinking. It may herald the start of a, a move away from that particular wing of the party 
uh, having as much control and influence as they do before. But I think it's definitely going to be a long-term process if we do start to see that decline. And we're not going to see any particularly immediate changes to, to the GOP's wider uh, ideological positions. Yeah, and I suspect the, the biggest direct impact here will be the fact that, that Trump didn't do particularly terribly and the fact that he quite significantly and I think quite fascinatingly raised his vote amongst Latinos and African-Americans shows that you can kind of build this broader Republican base by being something slightly different. And there's, there's plenty of people, um, I'm thinking people like Marco Rubio, who used to kind of play being a free marketeer, but now has uh, certainly not that way inclined these days, or, or Senator Thomas Harley, who's got a lot of attention for attacking tech companies as somehow the, the greatest evil in the universe, who really want to use government and to manipulate society and to their benefit and and far greater role for let's say industrial policy and trying to ensure a manufacturing base in America what that means or how that works in practice hasn't ever been fully realized and I I don't think it can be because I think it's it's kind of bunk policy goals but that's certainly the kind of rhetoric and disposition on that side of the Republican Party has its standard bearers now and have been fueled by Trump, and I can't really see going anywhere. On the other hand, though, there does seem to be some pushback, and I suspect without Trump in the White House, it'll be much harder to sustain. Someone like Nikki Haley, although she, of course, was a, a Trumpite in the fact that she was in the administration and she's always been very supportive of him, has shown herself to be a bit more sympathetic to the kind of free market worldview and push back against the, those conservatives who see a bigger role for the state as, as little different to socialists. So it's potentially quite a big debate that will go on in the Republican Party between, the, I guess, some of the more free marketeer, wonkiest traditional establishment types and, and some of the kind of more insurgent populist types who, who want to push uh, a, a certain perspective that they think can be quite successful with the electorate. It's also worth, po- sorry to interrupt, but it's also worth pointing out that, you know, if you are the people who are really from that old school Trumpian um you know, more interventionist part of the um, of the Republican Party, as well as the, some of the people on the left who were kind of it. There was some people on the left who were quite interested in some of the economic stuff Trump was 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 um, was talking about. You know, those people uh, a very different perspective from from ours certainly, but those people see the tr- disappointment in a lot of the Trump administration exactly because he governed as a as a traditional Republican. He exactly because he you know achieved tax cuts and deregulation and didn't sort of, I don't know, whatever the sort of industrial policy plan they hoped he, he, he would do or the big infrastructure spending he want, he was supposed to be interested in. You know, so I think you need to kind of check the assumptions about Trumpism and what it actually looked like. And, and, and I think if you strip, to me, if you strip away the crazy personality stuff and the unhealthy sort of anti-democratic stuff and you look at the substance of the policy... It's not things I necessarily agree with, but it's not it's not outside the realm of just normal Republican politics. Yeah, and there's obviously a, a big difference necessarily between some of Trump's rhetoric and, and some of the, the practical right. policy right. actions of Trump that were always not quite as bad as his worst detractors would make out. Well, I think this is going to be a topic we're going to be discussing for a long time to come, particularly uh, the future of of the the center right and, and politics in the US and, and even kind of the global impacts that we haven't got to uh, and and the impact for the UK. So thank you very much for joining. Ollie. Hopefully we can have you back again soon. Great, yeah, thanks. 
So in this second section of the podcast, we're going to be discussing England's new lockdown. Uh, England has now entered a second national lockdown in the face of mounting cases, hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19. And we're joined for this section by Sam Bowman, who's Director of Competition Policy at the International Centre for Law and Economics, as well as, of course, a senior fellow at the Adam Smith Institute. So, Sam, why have we had a need for a second lockdown in the first place? Surely this could have been avoided. Um, I think it probably could have been avoided. Um, We didn't do any of the things that we would have had to do to avoid it. Uh, But I think in principle, it could have uh, definitely been avoided. Um, The reason that we've had to go into second lockdown, and um, I I think we have to be pretty clear that a lockdown is a policy failure when you get to the point where you have to lock down um, something's gone badly wrong. Um, But the reason is that cases have been rising exponentially. Um, Hospital admissions have been rising deaths have been rising. And um, judging by where we are in terms of hospital admissions, we've probably locked in um, something like at least a 1000 deaths a day, um, by the time this, um, this particular wave reaches its peak, um, and it would get a lot worse from that, if we didn't lock down. Um, the, the sad fact is that, as well as trying to prevent more people from dying, um, the NHS, the healthcare system will become overwhelmed um, if if uh, cases rise much more, and it may become overwhelmed um, even at our, our current point, which will make it unable not only to treat people who are suffering from COVID, but people who are suffering from other illnesses as well. Um, so really, we're, we're in a really, really bad situation, and uh, it would get even worse very, very rapidly if we didn't lock down. Uh, and just to kind of explore the, the case for a lockdown a little bit more, there are plenty of people, um, most prominently the, the kind of lockdown skeptics crowd, who argue that actually that there simply isn't a need for a lockdown now. The pandemic is already over um, because of things like herd immunity, um, because of the potentially large rates of false positives in our current COVID-19 testing regime, and, and also because of things like T-cell immunity. So could you uh, address that claim and whether you think it's got any merit? Well, well, yeah, Daniel, I think it is uh, an interesting question to be answered. So I've, I've written up an article trying to unpack some of these kind of quite complex claims with um, a friend of the ASI, in fact, former staff member of the ASI, Saloni. Uh, and we've kind of tried to work through some particular claims made by uh, a PhD, uh, Michael Yeadon, who's getting a lot of attention these days by basically claiming that the pandemic is over, that the, the rising cases we're seeing is just because of uh, a case-demic, uh, because the reality of the world is that uh, there's really wide levels of herd immunity already. Now, that's sadly not particularly true. It would be great if it were true. It would be great if the pandemic was over and it was actually less lethal than we first thought it was, and, and that would be a really great reality to live in. Um, unfortunately, it's not so. So to begin with, uh, the amount of people who've already had COVID is not quite as high as we might hope. We've seen this from uh, the serological studies, the antibody studies, but also what we know about um, the infection infection fatality rate. The idea that there's this widespread um, section of society who has T-cell immunity just isn't backed up by the fact of that the we've seen cases where 60 or 70% of a population has been infected and, and had antibodies on, on ships or in some of the worst affected um, cities in the world. So it, it feels like there's still a long way for this pandemic to play out if your goal was simply just to kind of rush forward to herd immunity and, and let a kind of wide widespread community infection um, go ahead. On top of that, on, on this kind of T-cell point, it is often misunderstood. So although it's, it's true that some might have a, a kind of longer-term T-cell 
um, protection uh, team memory cells that can help produce B cells and, and then uh, sorry, instruct B cells to create antibodies, is the technical way to put it, um, which can kind of mean that you don't necessarily get the virus as uh, harshly and severely in the future. It actually can't stop people being infected necessarily, at least we don't think it can. And there's no evidence to suggest that even if we do have T cells from COVID or we have T cells from, from the common cold, that that would provide protection from stopping the spread. So if people can might have T cells, it, it's not going to actually stop them from potentially getting the virus, um, maybe themselves mildly, but then spreading it to other people who would get it much worse, particularly older people who might not have those kind of T cell protection and therefore dying. And and the, the underlying reality here is that what we can see demonstrated in the population is that it is spreading, is that we do have um, rising case numbers. Um, and after a delay, and there's always a delay, uh, a rising hospitalizations and deaths. Now, the, the, on the more optimistic side, the relationship between that has changed quite substantially, partly because we're testing more. I do think that though not completely effective, the fact that we are testing and, and trying to trace as well as doing social distancing in the community means that the case rise has been um, relatively limited and, and certainly not as fast as during the first wave we saw in March. Uh, and as well, to begin with, at least, it appeared to largely be amongst younger people. Unfortunately, that then spread into older populations, particularly in, in northeast, northwest, but really a, across the country, and, and that led to hospitalizations and the deaths. We do have better ideas about treatment now, uh, we have dexamethorphine, which is a kind of a steroid you can use in more extreme cases to stop death. Um, there's also a bunch of other tr- potential treatments in the line, things like um, antibody treatments, uh, as well as uh, the potential for um, some other new vaccine, sorry, some other new uh, pills, as well as vaccines in the future. So there is an op- reason to be optimistic. That doesn't mean, though, that the pandemic is over. Yeah, I think this kind of gets on to what a lot of people were worried about for the first lockdown, which is what's the exit strategy? And you've covered pretty well there that we have uh, various therapeutics that are seemingly very efficacious, um, monoclonal antibodies, for an exa- for example, uh, as well as the development of vaccines, which I think very few people seriously um, believe is not, is not going to happen in the near future. Uh, but let's take the kind of idea that the pandemic is already over as, as pretty well debunked. And I'd encourage people to check out yours and Saloni's article, The Trouble with COVID Denialism on Unheard. Uh, one of the, the other kind of concerns that I think was raised a lot in the, the Commons debate over this by backbench MPs, as well as uh, former Conservative Party leaders, is that there are pretty significant trade-offs here with lockdown. Even if you accept that the, without a lockdown, there's going to be a, a rise in cases, hospitalizations, and consequently deaths, you have, uh, as economics is a science of trade-offs, um, the other things relating to increased suicide rates, um, the additional economic harms that may not have occurred in the absence of lockdown, uh, loneliness and mental health issues, etc. cetera. Um, how seriously do you take these kind of arguments on on the other side that actually maybe the the COVID deaths, the additional COVID deaths as a result um, of not locking down is a price worth paying to stop people from um, from experiencing loneliness, mental health issues, etc. Well, um, some of it's very, very accurate and some and important to recognize. Some of it's um, not that accurate. So so one one point is that um, when people talk about suicides um, the base of suicides is very low in the UK compared to the base of people who have died of COVID um, and compared to the number of people who could die from COVID. Um, so last year, there were about 4,000 suicides in the um, in the UK among men. Um, the, 
the 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 even a even a significant increase in that as tragic and awful as that would be um really you have to compare that to the potential for hundreds of thousands of people to die from covid um that's not to say that that isn't a trade off or that's not to say that isn't a cost but we need perspective about the relative magnitudes of these things um when it comes to the health service, um, it's a, I think it's just basically a mistake and a misunderstanding of what's going on um, when, when um, the health service kind of turns people away for treatment. Um, it usually isn't a policy decision to say, you know, we, we just decided that other people don't matter or because of lockdown, we're deciding to not treat people. Um, sometimes it is. And there has been um, some really disturbing um, kind of reports of really the NHS um, refusing to treat people uh, until they're really in in dire emergency situations. And that's just a a clear policy mistake. Um, But for the most part, the lack of treatment for the healthcare services because the healthcare service has been overwhelmed by people with COVID who need to be treated urgently or they will die. Um, so it's not a, it's not caused by lockdown. It's caused by this significant increase in COVID cases. And if you're concerned about the health service being able to treat people for other diseases, which you should be, then you should be trying to keep the number of COVID cases to a minimum. Um, or you'll need to bite the bullet and say, we shouldn't treat people who get COVID for one reason or another. We should prioritize these other people, which I think very, very few people actually um, would, would claim because that isn't necessarily the best way of doing triage. Um, when it comes to the economic costs of lockdown, which are real and which are very significant, um, <clears throat> we need to, first of all, um, weigh the costs of letting hundreds of thousands of people die of COVID, which is, I'm afraid, the alternative, um, versus uh, the the counterfactual of the economy in that kind of scenario. Um, well, as we've seen in Sweden, um, which had a bigger GDP drop than its neighbours, um, its neighbours which locked down um, and had many, many, many more deaths. Uh, and as we've seen in lots of US states, um, by comparing states that had harsh lockdowns with states that had no lockdown or very mild lockdowns, we've seen that the GDP impact is fairly similar, whether or not you have a, a lockdown, because people will individually decide to stay at home, individually decide uh, to work from home or not go to the office. And a lot of places have ended up having to do layoffs, not because of lockdown, but because of that voluntary distancing action. So um, the economic cost is real of lockdown for sure. But um, the economic cost of, a vo- of the voluntary lockdown that would be taking place otherwise uh, may be just as great uh, with, with fewer or with none of the health benefits. Um, so to me, while I recognize that um, lockdown does impose costs, I think um, people are committing the nirvana fallacy to imagine that the alternative is a sort of normal business as usual world, um, even before we think about all of the excess deaths that, that would cause. Yeah, look, I, I think Sam's absolutely right that often we can poke point too rosy a picture. Uh, we, we saw even before the first lockdown a decline in economic activity. It didn't wasn't the lockdown that started uh, the, the economic downturn. It was the, the fact of the virus itself. Um, I do think, and this is kind of a point I try to make to some extent in, in the piece uh, on Unheard, is the fact that whilst we, we can't deny the existence of COVID, there are policy trade-offs and there are, there are downside risks. You know, we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. When it comes to lockdown, I, I do think it is important to think on the margin and to kind of, in some sense, do the almost the impossible, which is to try to quantify the risks and benefits of, of both action and inaction, as well as taking different actions. So lockdown is, is not a, a thing in itself. A lockdown is a, a series of, of different uh, restrictions on, on people's 
activities. And some of them, you know, for example, let's say there was a semi-lockdown uh, in tier two restrictions that we had in London or tier one in, across the country where you could, had a 10 p.m. curfew. Now, now, to me, that seemed like a huge imposition on businesses and, and people's liberty without any particularly good scientific basis to think that it would actually reduce the, the spread of coronavirus. In fact, it could have done the opposite by bringing people out of pubs at the same time, drunk and onto more busy tubes. So I, I think it's very important to still have debates about individual lockdown measures and, the, and their potential costs and benefits. And there's another point as well, uh, which I think is quite important, which is we, we need to be skeptical on on all sides, even though we, we are taking COVID extremely seriously, about some of the claims uh, being made by the government. I, I think the government also often does itself a disservice by exaggerating the, the risks of, of COVID. I think we've seen this twice, particularly with Patrick Rallance and, and the government's scientific advice, uh, when they presented an example scenario in September where they said there'd be 50,000 daily cases uh, confirmed cases in, on their graph by mid-October, um, that did not happen. That that was not the reality of it. Uh, and the fact that they just presented the scenario without any particularly good logic or, or reasoning behind it or without presenting alternatives to that scenario, I think, undermined the public messaging and undermined the seriousness of the virus. And I think, the, to some extent, they've done the same thing again. The criticism of the kind of scenarios that they presented on, on Halloween where announcing the second lockdown are legitimate. The, if you look at the worst case model, the one that was getting a lot of attention, the PHE Cambridge model, that showed uh, basically a thousand daily deaths by the end of October. At that point, we were at a few hundred daily deaths, of course, tragic and, and terrible and, and action and lockdown might necessarily be justified. But I don't think it's helpful to show what has subsequently come out as out-of-date data, as well as a false premise, which is the premise they're presenting in those particular models with no action being taken. But by the time they presented those models, the government was already taking action in the tier system. So I, I think we have to be very careful not exaggerating the risk because that's going to undermine public faith and public confidence. And it's going to give a lot of credence to, to COVID denialists who have already come back and said, well, the models are nonsense. This isn't going to happen. Um, and, and downplay the necessity of, of taking action. I think the best case for this new lockdown is probably to protect the healthcare system. I'm not 100% persuaded it's, it's necessary. We're already in it now, but I'm not 100% persuaded it was necessary to lock down again uh, based on the data. And I think there's, there's some evidence that tier three was proving relatively effective in Liverpool, for example. And uh, the, the in London, it, it may have also peaked uh, before the second lockdown. So it's it's not that things are always as, as clear and necessary um, whilst taking the virus seriously that we, we can't do lesser measures that still prove effective. Um, I agree with a lot of what um, Matt's just said, but uh, I think that one thing that's become really clear throughout this is that most people, including people who work in public policy, don't understand exponential growth at all and just cannot get their heads around the idea that um, a disease where somebody getting it will pass it on to two people and they will each pass it on to two people and so on will spread incredibly rapidly if we don't um, change that that rate of spread. I think people found that incredibly difficult to get their heads around. And <clears throat> demonstrating as the kind of <clears throat> as the chart that um, uh, Matthew mentioned um, did, demonstrating how quickly a small number of cases can grow into an unbelievably large number of cases, I think is very useful. Um, I don't think that they they presented it necessarily as well as they could have, but they they didn't claim that that was the trend that we were on. They were trying to demonstrate this is how bad it can get if things don't change and if things don't um, or or if things get into this um, R two kind of rate of spread. And just on the the current lockdown that we're in at the moment and the idea it's going to end, um, we're told in early 
December. Do you think that setting a date to end a lockdown is kind of the best approach or actually it's just a political compromise and we should instead, the ideal scenario would be to say, we'll end the lockdown when the R rate becomes X number? Um, I don't know. I, I really, I mean, I, I'm not that optimistic that we will come out of lockdown um, on that date. And um, part of me thinks that one of the mistakes we made last time was coming out of lockdown um, without really stamping out the number of cases. I mean, I, I mean, we're so close, it looks like, to a vaccine that maybe it won't be necessary. But if the um, option is come out of lockdown on December 1st and then have a third lockdown a few weeks after that because we haven't stamped out the number of cases, it might be better to just go for um, a lockdown until there are so few cases that we can effectively track and trace from that point um, and not have another lockdown uh, between now and uh, the vaccine coming out. Just don't let the Tory backbenchers hear you say that too loud. Well, if you, if you, I mean, you're right because I think it would appall a lot of people. But um, if you, if you don't like lockdown, um, you should be realistic that the rest of the country is not going to listen to you about this. Um, the rest of the country does not want to this virus to spread and does not want to get this virus and will favour a lockdown. So in in that case, your second best policy is whatever makes a, a third lockdown least likely, and that may include extending the second lockdown. I, I do I do worry, Sam, though, that going down that path is inevitably leading to many, many months of lockdown, probably three, four, five months lockdown to actually get to the point you're talking about. If if it, it was at all possible, I think we'd also almost only have to shut schools and universities that there might be a case for. I, I just, I, I can't see it actually being necessarily worth the the cost. I think I think we definitely should shut schools and universities. Um, I mean, universities are a no brainer. Secondary schools to me are a no brainer. Um, and I think we, we there are a lot of things we can do to um, give young children um, an education without requiring them all to bunch up in full size classrooms and schools as we as we often are right now. But um, if the alternative is a third lockdown, then I mean I, I don't know why anybody would prefer a third lockdown to extending the second lockdown such that we don't need the third lockdown. If that means less time spent in lockdown in total. It's not clear to me, though, that it would actually mean less time spent in lockdown because the, the the problem, I think, in the UK, the virus is basically endemic at this point. It is so widespread in the community that we're not in a situation where my, my home state of Victoria, mind you, they, they didn't have a particularly high number of cases and they still had to lock down for 120 days. It was over 120 days to just to get uh, the virus down to near zero. And that was in a situation of no um, external travel as well. So we'd also have to close the borders as well to make this work, uh, which I suspect wouldn't be particularly long-term palatable in as a policy setting as well as shutting down schools and universities for that entire period of time as well as somehow hoping that you can stamp it out in every context where people interact i'm not sure that that covid zero is a particularly viable strategy in the uk at this point i would like to see a much bigger focus on on mass testing as a way to push down the case numbers and what they're starting to in liverpool i think is fantastic news uh rather than thinking that we can kind of hang out in lockdowns for a long period of time with the hope that there might be a, a vaccine. I think there probably will be a vaccine, but it's still, it's a risky policy position, surely. Uh, well, maybe in, in, in a funny way, actually, um, my I'm in the position of um, the people who sort of, who ask um, rhetorically, you know, what if there's never a vaccine? If there's never a vaccine, I think COVID zero is the most sensible policy. Um, I think if there's, if, if we expect a vaccine to be a year or two away, then um, the, the, approach I've just kind of mentioned probably is the best policy. But if we expect a vaccine within two or three months, then um, I think you're probably right that we can afford to um, take sort of 
not not the most extreme possible measures right now. We can afford to have some level of um, spread uh, because we'll get a vaccine before we reach a kind of third peak. So what do you think that we, we should have done to kind of avoid this in the first place? I know, Sam, you wrote uh, an article recently, COVID, the war, we never thought. What are the sort of interim measures that we could have taken and perhaps could take if we don't get a vaccine for a while to be able to reduce the R rate without having to lock down entirely? Well, I think um, it's really important to to think about the things that we did do that we shouldn't have done first. Um, we, we did allow mass travel for summer holidays. Um, that was a disaster. We now know that travellers brought back COVID from Spain with them. Um, there is a strain of COVID that has been traced back to Spain uh, that spread all over Europe because of these um, holidaymakers. I don't blame the holidaymakers, but I blame the government for allowing that to, to happen. Um, we shouldn't have subsidised restaurant meals Um There's some evidence, I'm not sure how strong the evidence is, but there's some evidence that that contributed to, um, you know, about 10% of cases in August. Uh, We definitely shouldn't have reopened universities. That was a complete disaster from the start. Um, Locking locking students in their student halls the day they've gone back um, and now basically trapping them on campus because we're... It's we're now in such a stupid, such a stupid and bad position that if we close the universities, they'll all go home and bring the uh, bring COVID back with them, which would be even worse. I don't think we should have reopened schools, as I say, um, and we shouldn't have floated a kind of go back to the office and lose your job or lose your job um, campaign, which again was just crazy. I think, um, but all of those unforced errors aside, and I, the reason I mention them is to emphasize that I don't think it was inevitable that we would be here now, and I think um, the government deserves an enormous amount of blame for those mistakes um but it also didn't do things that we probably could do now that when we come out of this lockdown um could delay the next lockdown potentially long enough that a vaccine is ready um and those include things like a proper move to outdoor drinking and dining i mean really i would probably say that indoor drinking and dining just can't happen um anything indoors that you can't do with a mask on you can't do um and and kind of in exchange for that i think i would subsidize things like patio heaters bring back propane patio heaters on a mass scale subsidize them as much as as much as is needed um i would like to give over public space including parking spaces uh second lanes and streets uh maybe even full streets um as in Northcote Road in in uh, Clapham Junction, to restaurants and bars, so that they have a space that they can move to, so that they can heat it, provided it's ventilated, and um, serve customers out there. Um, I think we could do a much much more about public information about how COVID is spread. Uh, it seems that even now most people don't realise that COVID is spread through aerosols and respiratory droplets, not through um, fomites, which which you can avoid by hand washing. I mean, there was a huge hand washing push, and there's been very little um, since we've learned that it's not spread primarily that way. Um, compare that with Japan, which from the very start had this campaign about the three C's, which are closed spaces, crowded places, and close contact settings. Um, and that awareness may have contributed to um, Japan's sort of relatively good performance throughout all this. Um, I would I would properly enforce mask wearing. Um, one of the things I've really tried to emphasize throughout this is that this is um, a collective action problem where you need everybody to abide by the rules for it to be worth you individually abiding by the rules. Um, if, if you see 50% of people walking around um, on the tube not wearing masks, it's kind of pointless for you to wear a mask as well. Um, the mask protects others from you. It doesn't protect you from others. And if others aren't bothering to protect you from them, then it's sort of pointless for you to protect them from you. And I mean, unless you're a nice person, which I hope people listening are. 
Um, but really, it's the state's role in these kind of emergency situations to coordinate and to enforce those rules. And um, I think a lot more done around that could have made a difference and could make a difference. Um, and I would bring in mandatory quarantining, maybe even um, custodial quarantining for international tra travellers um, entering the UK. So right now you can just get on public transport, you um, sign a declaration online that says you'll be in a certain place for two weeks. It's never enforced, it's never checked. Um, I think that given that we've got lots of empty hotel rooms, uh, the least we could do is require travellers to stay in those hotel rooms at their cost for a week or so. And I would, um, as I mentioned earlier, move to kind of teaching pods for school children. Um, I, I recognize that it's important um, for small children to learn how to read and write and to do basic maths. Um, I think that we can still provide some level of um, education to them in small groups so that when there is an outbreak and when one kid is diagnosed, we have to, we have to trace six kids rather than 25 kids. Um, and so that the, the actual spread to, to potential spread is to six families rather than 25 families. Um, and I really, really don't think um, we should be sending secondary school kids to, to school at all. I think secondary school is really not that important in the grand scheme of things for people's development. And um, there's plenty of evidence that that's the case. And um, let's face it, 16 year olds are not learning the equivalent of learning how to read and write and do sums. Um, they're learning much, much more uh, esoteric things that might be interesting, uh, but I'm not sure they're essential in the same way that um, the teaching for younger kids is. So that's a pretty comprehensive uh, summary, I think, of what how the government got things wrong and some of the things that we could have done to uh, to help out earlier on in this pandemic. Matt, I'm interested to know your views on the the Chancellor, who's recently announced an expansion of the furlough scheme. Uh, perhaps some praise rather than blame in this particular regard might be in order. Is this the right economic response? Well, I think it's an unfortunately costly economic response, but probably a, a largely necessary one. Ideally, we would have long since successfully stamped out the virus. I'd, I'd add to what Sam discussed, a, a really, really big focus on, on as I kind of got to earlier, mass testing and um, isolating people who have the virus. I don't think we're very good at that at the moment, and we should be offering them uh, hotel rooms, for example, for seven days to be able to isolate away from your family if you so chose, as well as kind of regular testing for people who have asked to isolate. I think the government, to some extent, does have the right uh, idea here. It's just a matter of making that massively um, implementable across populations. Probably also involves, to some extent, deregulating testing and having a lot more private sector focus on testing so that if you want to host an event or something, you can, you can now get these... Um, uh, lateral flow antigen tests that are quite accurate uh, and you can get them for about five pounds a pop and if you could do that before everyone walks into a venue or a meeting you can you can more or less get life back to, to normal to a far greater extent and you could probably even uh, in contrast to what sam said about schools if you were testing everyone every day at schools you probably wouldn't um, need to, to shut them down at all and the, the same kind of principle with universities if we can just get down the cost um, low enough and, and get it implemented on a huge scale, uh, I think we could have a far more focus on those who are actually infected and at risk of spreading the virus rather than limiting everyone's liberties. But so just back onto the Chancellor's statement in terms of extension of furlough, for now it does make sense to try to, as was classically the case, and I think Sam explained quite well at the start of the pandemic, um, freeze the economy in place and ensure that we don't lose those kind of links and bonds that hold businesses together, as well as the, the bonds that link an employer to um, an employee and the kind of skills that weren't and, and that kind of 
um, key linkage in the economy. And if you can furlough people, particularly, and I, I quite like the idea of a flexible furlough, which I think you can do now, which is having someone furloughed for a few days a week, but, but work in the other three days. So you still get some kind of labor productivity out of them rather than giving the business an arbitrary choice of stop all activities, which I think a lot probably to some extent unnecessarily did in, in March, April, uh, be, in order to kind of take advantage of furlough. If they can keep their operation going at, you know, 20 or 30 or 40%, that's better than 0%, uh, much better for everyone uh, than 0%. Um, I think it's it's probably to some extent dependent on, on relative vaccine optimism because the willingness to spend this much money to maintain the economy where it is today is dependent on the idea that you're going to be able to get out of this relatively quickly. Otherwise, in the longer run, we're going to have to accept that there will be an not insubstantial number of job losses and business failings, and we're going to have to adapt to that new reality. And I don't think we're quite at that point yet necessarily, but to some extent, you know, for a long time, people aren't going to be, let's say, flying as much. So you're probably not going to need as many air hostesses is, is the reality of it. So you're not, you're not going to need as uh, big airlines and you're not going to have as many staff and, and people are going to, who are currently doing that are sadly going to have to find other things to do with their lives. It's, it's constantly happening in the economy. Millions of people lose their job every year and need to find new jobs. It's the kind of natural process of uh, a dynamic economy, but we're going to have to do a lot more of that, I think, um, as as COVID moves on. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with um, most of what, what Matthew's just said. Um, the, uh, particularly about furlough and um, making furlough as um, kind of flexible as possible so that it's um, basically something that says to businesses, you know, you can, we want you to use your employees as much as possible, but um, we we would much rather subsidize their um, employment for the next X number of months um, so that you don't lay them off instead of you laying them off. Because once you once a, that employment contract is broken, um, people will go off, they find other work. Um, often it's much less productive work than it would be if they had just stuck in that role in a sort of deep freeze type situation and um, gone back to normal once, once the vaccine is here and once things get back to relative normal. I'm a lot less concerned about um, the reallocation of resources happening now. Um, I don't think that um, I, th- I think it's good that with furlough you can take a second job and and do that. Um, so you know, for example, we don't have a shortage of potential delivery drivers. Um, but I'm not that concerned about um, you know quickly moving stewardesses and stewards in and and pilots and and you know other equivalent type roles into new jobs. I think I think let's just wait. We can do that with the recovery. Um, the the downside risk of um, jobs that are valuable and that are sustainable in the non-COVID situation. Um, being lost is a lot greater than the kind of upside of of reallocating them rapidly, given that there really aren't that many new job openings um, available right now for obvious reasons. But I guess just to finish a question for both of you, because a lot of people on the kind of liberal side of politics feel understandably very uncomfortable with the ideas of, of lockdowns and restrictions. They might think it's necessary, but find it deeply distasteful uh, and perhaps contrary to some of their their liberal instincts. How does support for for these sort of restrictions fit in with your broader uh, liberal leanings and philosophy? How do you kind of justify it from a liberal perspective? Maybe you, Sam, first. Well, to me, um, liberalism and liberty comes down to my freedom to do anything I want to do, provided it doesn't affect your freedom to do anything you want to do. Um, that's the kind of mill, million idea of freedom, and I think it's a pretty good one. Um, and usually that tells us an awful lot about what we should and shouldn't be able to do. Um, it tells me that I should be able to take drugs. It tells me that I should be able to eat as much as I want without being taxed or nannied away from doing it. Um, it tells me a lot. 
uh, it doesn't tell me about what I can do when there's a potential that me going out to the shop with an infectious disease could kill several people um, without their knowing um, or without their knowing that they'll catch this disease from me. Um, it really does affect uh, my next door neighbor's freedom if there's a significant risk that they're going to die if they happen to interact with me. Um, and so I think that, uh, unfortunately, the kind of general sort of laissez-faire principles that I usually stick to when it comes to individual freedom don't apply. Um, we're, we're more like in a situation where everybody is debating whether you should be able to have a bomb in your house. Um, and it's certainly, if you live alone and if you live in, a, in the middle of a desert, uh, I think you should be able to have a bomb in your house because you're the only person who is at risk there. Uh, but if you live in an area where there are people around you um, who will also be affected by you accidentally detonating your bomb, um, that's where I don't think liberalism um, does tell us uh, to. And I, and I don't, I, I'm not, I don't actually think that liberalism is fail, failing here. And I don't think that liberalism doesn't have anything to say here. I think liberalism tells us that we should not allow you to have a bomb in your house because liberalism is about the protection of the freedoms of others, not just you um, as a kind of individual atom. Oh, I'm sure if we had Murray Rothbard on the podcast, he'd be arguing vociferously in favour of uh, private nuclear weapons ownership. Well, I mean, you say that, but but one one um, point that that I think that a lot of um, libertarians don't really get is that really serious natural rights libertarians like Murray Rothbard actually do consider um, pandemic disease to be uh, effectively a threat against a person, um, and they believe in the med- the right to medical self defense and I think Murray Rothbard would say, uh, yeah, you can have a bomb on your property. Yeah, you can have a disease if you want. But if you give it to somebody else, if you detonate that bomb and you damage them, damage me, then um, I have recourse against you. And um, now I don't know that that's particularly workable in the world that we live in, but um, I'd be happy to treat um, willful spreading of COVID as attempted murder. And um, I'd be happy to um, say anybody who does things that, um, you know, willfully lead to older, uh, older people, other people catching COVID and dying is equivalent to drunk driving and negligently allowing somebody else to die. Um, and I think that would be that would actually lead us to a, a reasonably similar outcome to the one that we've got. It would it would look quite different, but the the outcome would not be uh, mass infection, and it would not be um, you know well we've got to keep the pubs open so that you know some people can go to the pub and you know f you if you happen to be old and you catch this virus. Instead, we'd be saying we're going to treat you incredibly strictly and incredibly harshly if you spread this disease negligently, um, which unfortunately is a lot of people right now. I mean, to, to, to get back to the, the side of your question, Daniel, I think liberals should feel deeply uncomfortable with these kind of restrictions on our liberty. And I, I think that as a as a basis of a way of thinking is not necessarily wrong in, in, in any way. We should be sceptical of, of state power, as liberals have always been, um, and qu- always question its necessity. And I think there are some genuine questions about the way the government has gone about um, interfering with our liberties and the, the extent to which... Um, some individual restrictions are necessary, not necessary. I think those are all genuine debates. What I'd say, though, overall is that I, I do completely agree with Sam that effectively your, your liberty to uh, wave your fist stops at the point it reaches my jaw. Um, you, you can more or less, and this is kind of a, a classical um, million harm principle, you can more or less do as you please uh, in, a, in a free society as long as it doesn't impact others and, and spreading a virus that is deadly and, and can kill other people um, is, is deeply deeply concerning. And I think liberals, as well on top of that, have an underlying respect for the, the value of human life. And we, we value that quite highly. We value everyone's, um, and this might be a more rights-based perspective, but we value everyone's equal dignity. And if you consider life to be important, then allowing 
um, people to spread a virus that could, could kill other people, uh, I think is undermining liberal principles rather than necessarily supporting them. Oh, I think that's a suitable point to end on. Thank you very much, my co-host, Matthew Lesh, Head of Research at the Adam Smith Institute, as well as our guest just now, Sam Bowman, the uh, Director of Competition Policy at the International Centre for Law and Economics, as well as our earlier guest, Oliver Wiseman, the US editor of The Critic magazine. Thanks a lot for tuning in to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, then please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.